6.30 p.m. at the First Unitarian Church in Portland. Save the VA from Privatization, a forum of veterans, VA caregivers, and union activists, features prize-winning journalist Suzanne Gordon, who will discuss the value and importance of the VA healthcare system and the current threats to the VA from privatization and outsourcing. Again, that's Save the VA from Privatization on Wednesday, May 16th at 5.30 p.m. at the First Unitarian Church, 1211 Southwest Main Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Well, good morning. This is KBOO Portland. It's uh, 9.01, and here's what we have coming up for you this morning on the rest of the morning. First, it's Sojourner Truth Radio, today looking at the life of Kwame Truwe, a.k.a. Stokely Carmichael, his journey from civil rights worker to black power leader to pan-Africanist and socialist. At 10 o'clock, it's Air Cascadia, headlines, interviews, and commentary. At 10.15, flashpoints with Dennis Bernstein, And then at 11 o'clock, the food show with a focus on food culture and foodies. We thank you, KBU members, for your support to stay informed and get involved. Go to kboo.fm, kboo.fm, and click on Donate to become a member. Thank you. And now we get right to Sojourner Tooth Radio. Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, a one-hour special on Stokely Carmichael, also known as Kwame Ture. He is known by a generation for popularizing the cry of black power. We speak with Dr. Peniel Joseph about his brand new book, Stokely, A Life. How did the concept of black power as a political strategy develop? How and why did Stokely Carmichael move from civil rights worker to U.S.-based black power leader to pan-Africanist and socialist? What price did he pay? We have a wide-ranging conversation on Stokely's life, impact, and contributions. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. Funerals across Gaza today after Israeli snipers killed more than 60 unarmed Palestinians in the deadliest day in nearly seven weeks of protest. The United Nations Security Council takes up the issue today. Rami Almagari filed this report from Gaza. Israeli snipers killed dozens of unarmed Palestinians in the deadliest day of the protests thus far. 2,000 others were wounded, some of them severely. Gaza medical facilities were overwhelmed. And your families came to peacefully protest against the formal opening of the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem. 53-year-old Om Muhammad from the historical Palestinian coastal city of Jaffa was wearing a mask to avoid inhaling tear gas. I came here along with my sons and daughters in support of the Alaska Mosque of Jerusalem. I asked God to make us victorious over Jews and Americans. 
I ask for God's mercy and that He help us all to return to our homeland. For Pacifica Radio, KPFA, I am Rami El Mirari in Gaza. Palestinian leaders have called for three days of mourning for the dozens of Palestinians killed yesterday. Protests are taking place today in the West Bank and Ramallah. Palestinians mark today as Nakba, the catastrophe. It's the 70th anniversary of the establishment of the State of Israel when 700,000 Palestinians were forced from their lands. The president of Turkey is accusing Israel of genocide in the deaths of the unarmed Palestinians in Gaza. Turkey and South Africa have recalled their ambassadors from Israel. The Trump administration squares off against the state of California, the University of California, and other government entities on protections for young undocumented immigrants. Administration attorneys will try to convince a federal appeals court that the Trump administration acted within its rights when it ended DACA protections for hundreds of thousands of young immigrants. A three-judge panel of the Ninth Circuit becomes the first federal appeals court to hear arguments on Trump's decision to end the Obama-era policy. A federal judge in San Francisco in January blocked the Trump administration decision to end DACA. The ruling reinstated the program in a decision that applied nationwide. Activists in 31 states held rallies and nonviolent civil disobedience actions in what they're calling a poor people's campaign. Christopher Martinez filed this report from the California State Capitol. Hundreds gathered at the state capitol in Sacramento, many bearing signs with messages like Fight Poverty, Not the Poor, and Before This Campaign Fails, We Will All Go Down to Jail. Sharon Wilson is with the group Hunger Action. If the government would stop spending money on bombing the countries and spending money on war, we would have more than enough food, welfare programs, and other programs to help people with disabilities around the world. The movement is addressing what it calls the four pillars of systematic racism, poverty, ecological devastation, and the war economy. After the rally, the activists turned to civil disobedience. Actor and activist Danny Glover urged them to keep up the work. A moment where we build the movement, a sustainable movement, an activist movement, into a real change. Reporting from the state capitol, I'm Christopher Martinez. Seattle's largest businesses, such as Amazon and Starbucks, will have to pay a new tax to help fund homeless services and affordable housing under a measure approved by the city council. The rapidly expanding tech industry is blamed for gentrification, rising rents, and rates of homelessness in Seattle. The council unanimously passed a compromise plan to tax businesses making at least $20 million in gross revenues, about $275 per full-time worker each year. That's lower than the $500 per worker initially proposed. The so-called head tax would raise roughly $48 million a year to build new affordable housing units and provide emergency homeless services. Amazon is Seattle's largest employer. It had threatened to stop construction planning on a 17-story building near its hometown headquarters if the original measure passed. Even after council members compromised on a scaled-back tax, Amazon, Starbucks, and business groups sharply criticized the vote. One Washington state Republican leader said he'll seek legislation next year to spell out that cities cannot levy such local taxes. 
In a passionate, obscenity-filled monologue at the Cannes Film Festival, Spike Lee lambasted Donald Trump over his response to last year's violent white supremacist protest in Charlottesville, Virginia. Lee spoke as his new film, Black Klansman, screened at the festival. I'm Eileen Alfandari. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. That was our news headlines. We focus this hour on the life and impact of Stokely Carmichael, also known by his African name, Kwame Ture. Let's hear an excerpt from Stokely Carmichael's 1966 speech at the University of California, Berkeley. Now then, in order to understand white supremacy, we must dismiss the fallacious notion that white people can give anybody their freedom. No man can give anybody his freedom. A man is born free. You may enslave a man after he is born free. And that is, in fact, what this country does. It enslaves black people after they're born. So that the only act that white people can do is to stop denying black people their freedom. That is, they must stop denying freedom. They never give it to anyone. Now, we want to take that to its logical extension so that we could understand, then, what its relevancy would be in terms of new civil rights bills. I maintain that every civil rights bill in this country was passed for white people, not for black people. For example, I am black. I know that. I also know that while I am black, I am a human being. Therefore, I have the right to go into any public place. White people didn't know that. Every time I tried to go into a place, they stopped me. So some boys had to write a bill to tell that white man he's a human being. Don't stop him. That bill was for that white man, not for me. I knew it all the time. I knew it all the time. I knew that I could vote and that that wasn't a privilege. It was my right. Every time I tried, I was shot, killed, or jailed, beaten, or economically deprived. So somebody had to write a bill for white people to tell them, when a black man comes to vote, don't bother him. That bill, again, was for white people, not for black people. So that when you talk about open occupancy, I know I can live any place I want to live. It is white people across this country who are incapable of allowing me to live where I want to live. You need a civil rights bill, not me. I know I can live where I want to live. Dr. Peniel Joseph is a professor of history and the founding director of the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy. He is the author of the book, Stokely, A Life a biography of iconic civil rights leader Stokely Carmichael. Dr. Joseph is also the author of the award-winning Waiting Till the Midnight Hour, A Narrative History of Black Power in America, and Dark Days, Bright Nights, From Black Power to Barack Obama. Dr. Peniel Joseph stopped by our studios. Here is what the New York Times had to say about Stokely a life. They say, quote, in chronicling the life of the activist intellectual Stokely Carmichael in Stokely A Life, an insightful, highly engaging, and fluently written biography, the historian Peniel E. Joseph has shed light on one critical, if largely overlooked, part of that journey. And there you have a rather glowing uh, review by the New York Times. It's entitled Evolution of an Activist. Let's go to our interview now with Dr. Peniel Joseph. 
Peniel Joseph, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me, Margaret. All righty. So Stokely, a life book about Stokely Carmichael. What got you interested in doing a book a book on Stokely? Well, I mean, my mother is um, really my first teacher and historian and, and mm-hmm. really an activist. And um, I'm the I'm the son of Haitian immigrants. Who oh, are you? Came okay. to the United States in 1965. So I was raised oh. by a single mother in New York City, and she worked for um, Mount Sinai Hospital and was part of the 1199 uh, Hospital Workers Union. So I was on my first picket line when I was in elementary school. So, but that—that's a we have a kind of a similar story because I'm also from the islands, from Barbados, yes. and um, living emigrated to Brooklyn. Yep. And you know, got involved in the in the movement from there. Yeah, right? we we uh-huh. actually lived in in Brooklyn and then moved to Queens. Oh, okay. So um, it's a very interesting <laughs> story as well. Yeah, Crown Heights and, in yeah. Brooklyn, and we yeah. were off of Eastern uh-huh. Parkway in Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I used to and live so, on Eastern Parkway yeah, so. at some point. Yeah, and so so I I got interested in political mm-hmm. activism through my mother. So I was reading about Haitian history and uh, the Black Jacobins by C.L.R. James when I was ten years old. So Stokely Carmichael came into my consciousness at a very, very young age, and it got reinforced through the Eyes on the Prize um, television series, which was mm-hmm. Henry Hampton, who's the African-American um, executive producer of that. That's coming out of Boston's Black Side Productions, and journalists like Callie Crossley and others were working on that. And so Stokely uh, became part of my uh, education in terms of the civil rights movement. And as I grew up into high school, um, was was very, very active, um, college, very, very active around many different issues, including um, um, Haitian refugees in Guantanamo, um, you know, anti-death penalty work. Uh, you know, Al Sharpton was there, Sonny Carson, all these different activists in New York. And so Stokely became somebody who I was pers- pursuing. People talked about Malcolm X, uh, Dr. King, but Stokely mm-hmm. really came into my consciousness. And so through doing work on the black power movement, I went to Temple University for my Ph.D. Uh, This was around the time that there was really a lot of activism around uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal, who was on death row, former Black Panther, um, around welfare rights, Kensington welfare rights activism in and around Philadelphia, especially North Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. You know, I taught high school in Philadelphia um, while doing my Ph.D. So Stokely was always you know, in in the back of my mind, Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Touré. And I got a chance to see Kwame Touré in Philadelphia uh, when he gave a speech at University of Pennsylvania before he was diagnosed with cancer. So he was hugely charismatic. He was talking about imperialism. He was talking about capitalism. He was talking about racial oppression. Um, And I got the chance to see him shake his hand, briefly speak to him. And then when I was doing my dissertation, I did a dissertation on the Black Power Movement. And um, that turned into my first book, which was called Waiting Till the Midnight Hour. And the deeper I did research, the more I was interested in Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture. Right. And of course, uh, Stokely Carmichael, who later changed his name to Kwame Ture, born in Port of Spain in in Trinidad uh, and Tobago, um, also um, hailed from from the Caribbean. So you were kind of grounded in, in that experience in, in your youth with your mom, labor union, um, black power movement as a student activist, you know, et cetera. So um, getting more into the the book itself and, and the life of Stokely Carmichael, of course, a very controversial 
you know, figure. And a lot of people remember, of course, he's mainly remembered for his cry of black power. And various other people have also staked the claim on coming up, you know, with, with that term. There are lots of stories I hear in the movement, you know, around that. But tell us then about Stokely's early years, his formative years then, as he becomes more of a national leader, but prior to that. Well, yeah, he, he's born June 29th, 1941 in Port of Spain, Trinidad. And what's interesting is that Stokely's parents um, both leave for the United States when he's really a tiny baby. Mm. And so his, he's raised by his paternal grandmother, Cecilia, and he's raised by his aunts as well, right? So he's really the middle child of five. Um, he's the only boy. He's the only son. Um, he's really going to be uh, somebody who is always identifying with underdogs, even in Trinidad. Um, even as a young man, he's a, he's a sharp dresser. They call him little man who's mm-hmm. in the little suits that his, 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 all these strong black women who are raising him um, um, dress him in. Uh, he goes to um, a little, a little uh, sort of um, intermediary school uh, in, on the island in Port of Spain, Trinidad. He's hugely uh, precocious, hugely smart and intelligent. Um, he, he's, oh, he always remembers Trinidad because he leaves Trinidad two weeks uh, before his 11th birthday, but he's inculcated in both um, the, the Caribbean tradition but also the British tradition, right? He remembers when Princess Margaret comes to the island, and he's waving the flag <laughs> at 10 years old. This is a memory that he's later going to say he's embarrassed by. By the time he's in London in 1967, uh, he's looking at a portrait of, of Princess Margaret, and he's saying, why is everybody so obsessed with British royalty? Um, but he used to be, too, as just a young young boy. Um, he comes to, to New York City in 1952, and what's interesting is he's reunited with his family after not seeing his mother for, for six, seven years after not seeing his father. So he has to get reacclimated. Um, him and his sisters come back to, to, to New York City, and there's already there's two more um, sisters uh, that have been born while they were still in Trinidad. So what's interesting is the Carmichael clan gets reunited and they move to uh, the Morris Park section of of the Bronx. His father, Adolphus Carmichael, who's a carpenter who had built the house he grew up in in Trinidad, is really now a jack of all trades, a taxi cab driver. His mother, Mae Charles, is a is a homemaker but a firebrand. She's the one who Stokely takes his temperament really after. And so what's interesting is that he moves to a predominantly white section of the Bronx, predominantly Italian. Um, his friends uh, become predominantly white, predominantly Italian. Uh, he goes to Bronx Science High School. He tests into that school. That's a very competitive school to test yeah, into. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. Predominantly Jewish school. And what's interesting is that he really becomes part of multiple worlds. On one level, he's got the Caribbean background. On another level, he's running with this predominantly Italian kids in his neighborhood. He's also going to Harlem where he's getting his hair cut, and he's hearing street speakers in Harlem, including Nation of Islam, but street speakers who, call, who are talking about the African Revolution. In the 1950s, mm-hmm. he's hearing about Emmett Till. Emmett Till is assassinated and lynched in 1955, 14-year-old black boy from Chicago, lynched in Money, Mississippi. Stokely is the same age as Emmett Till. When, when Emmett Till is lynched. So he's hearing about the civil rights movement. He's hearing about Malcolm X. And he's also participating in left-wing study groups where they're reading Marxism. They're reading socialism. Now, 
the black socialist tradition is going to be very, very important for the young Stokely Carmichael because he's going to be introduced to Bayard Rustin. Mm-hmm. And Bayard Rustin is the leading black socialist, along with A. Philip Randolph, in the United States. And what's interesting about Bayard Rustin is that Rustin belongs to a black radical social democratic tradition, a tradition of activism, organizing, um, pacifism. He had been incarcerated for being a conscientious objector during World War II. He had visited Africa. He had visited India. He schooled, mentored Martin Luther King Jr. in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, Rustin was also openly homosexual, so he was also on the margins of the movement because of being arrested on morals charges. When Stokely first sees Bayard Rustin, he asks, who is that speaking at a rally? He's told that that's Bayard Rustin, the socialist, and he says, that's who I want to be. So mm-hmm. he's going he's gonna to have all these different streams of activism. I should add that he's also organizing in Harlem as a teenager. So before he joins SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Stokely Carmichael is political. He's politicized, but he's also global. One of the things we have to remember with Stokely, he doesn't discover Pan-Africanism in the 1960s. He was in a Pan-African context in the 1950s. He was grounded in it, part of his education, political education. He's listening to Miriam Makeba as a teenager, and he tells one of his sisters that he's going to marry her as a teenager. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So that that's quite something. And and I guess that continues um, in a, a kind of a radical uh, tradition that a number of us who've come from the Caribbean region, uh, Dr. Gerald Horn um, writes a, a bit about and I think there'll be some of this in his upcoming his upcoming book about uh, a kind of a clandestine organization of Caribbean radicals. Oh, absolutely. Actually, yeah. And so, so who knows, how, you know, if, if there was any, if it was open or not, uh, you know, a connection with, with Stokely and, and that particular uh, trend. And, and, you know, I think what's interesting about being from the Caribbean is that, and we see it, whether it's Marcus Garvey or Hubert Harrison, is that there's such a rich connection between the Caribbean, the United States, but also Africa. So it's a rich Pan-African cultural, political uh, connection. Uh, These folks are activists and intellectuals, and Stokely is coming out of that tradition. Right, and and grounded in a much broader international uh, view. Okay, so um, jumping ahead uh, then, he, he does all of this, and he winds up being a freedom writer in the South. He writes up being a freedom writer. He goes to Howard University. Um, what's interesting, he joins the Nonviolent Action Group, which is a SNCC affiliate at mm-hmm. Howard University. At Howard University, it's really important to remember that the professors at Howard University include Sterling Brown, the towering poet, Toni Morrison, the future Pulitzer and Nobel Prize winner, is his freshman English professor. Amazing. Um, <laughs> there are so many different. Um, e. Franklin Frazier, the towering sociologist. So when we think about Howard, the Howard that Stokely Carmichael goes to from 1960 to 64 has a better faculty in my mind than Harvard University or any university in the United States. So we have to think of Howard not as just the black school, but as this towering, intellectually uh, gigantic school uh, with so many different luminaries. And he's also uh, connecting with so many different young civil rights activists, people like Ed Brown, uh, Cortland Cox, um, uh, Mike Thelwell, 
uh, Hank Thomas. There's going to be so many different people. So he becomes a freedom writer. He's part of SNCC. He's organizing in D.C., but he meets up with John Lewis, who's the who, who becomes chairman of yeah. SNCC and future congressman. And Stokely gets arrested for the first time in Mississippi as a freedom writer, June 8th, 1961. And he spends about 40 days in Parchman Penitentiary, mm. um, Mississippi's worst prison farm. And he's going to be incarcerated with people like James Farmer, of course, John Lewis, uh, of, of SNCC as well. And he spends his 20th birthday in jail. And that's going to be the first of many birthdays that he spends in jail. So what's interesting about Stokely uh, in the early 1960s is that that visit to Mississippi sparked something in him. He's going to visit Mississippi every summer afterwards and in 1964 go and live in Mississippi after graduating from Ho- um, Howard University. Uh, Bob Moses also inspires him. Bob Moses is the SNCC activist who really goes to, initially in 61, Macomb, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And there's the beautiful uh, letter that um, Moses smuggles out of a jail in Macomb, Mississippi, along with 13 SNCC activists in 1961, where he calls um, Mississippi the middle of the iceberg. And the iceberg is a metaphor for, for white supremacy and Jim Crow and racial oppression in the United States. And what's interesting is Stokely really... Um, uh, Bob Moses becomes Stokely's hero. He meets up with Moses in 1962. Uh, part of the reason he changes his major from pre-med to philosophy is because of Bob Moses, and they spend time discussing philosophical questions. And so Stokely falls in love with Mississippi. And so when we think about between 60 and 64, he's at Howard University. He's organizing in Cambridge, Maryland with Gloria Richardson and other activists. He's organizing Route 40 demonstrations with Julius Hobson, and core activist. He's being influenced by Ella Baker, who's the founder of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And really, Ella Baker is key here because she convinces the young people who are part of SNCC that what they're doing, there's more than meets the eye in terms of what they're doing. Her famous speech in 1960 that it's about more than just a hamburger. She's saying that it's about nothing less than democracy and radicalizing and transforming all these systems of oppression in the United States. Even if senior uh, civil rights leaders like Dr. King, who's only eight, nine, ten years older than them, um, disagree. So there's all these influences. Fannie Lou Hamer, Annie Ponder, all these different black women who are also influencing um, his activism in the Delta. Stokely becomes hugely, hugely popular, not just at Howard, but anywhere he goes. Among older black people in the Delta, he adopts their folk ways. He's hugely deferential to seniors. He babysits children. Um, He eats whatever food is in front of him. He's hugely respectful. So it's very, very important to understand that he thinks of poor black sharecroppers and poor black people as the people that can save democracy in the United States. Yeah, and and also I imagine with his roots in the Caribbean, much more rural than in in the United States. I mean, when you go south and a lot of those old ways and respect for the elders and you eat your food in front of you, I mean, all of those are things that transfer over um, from others of us in in the diaspora. I want to dig in a little bit with um, the time in SNCC the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, because you have SNCC, you've got King's Organization, SCLC, you've got the Congress of Racial Equality, you have the NAACP, the oldest civil rights organization in the country, but has this uh, history, I guess, of being more, uh, you know, more of the conservative, more mainstream than than some of the others. And we do know that there were tensions and and power struggles uh, among them. Mm -hmm. But Stokely 
developed a close relationship with uh, Martin Luther King. Tell us, you know, a bit about that, because that really played a big role in how, in his view, how he was seen and also how other people see him. Yeah, he first meets up with Dr. King in 1963 at Howard University. Mm -hmm. And unlike other SNCC activists, Stokely um, puts his ego aside when it comes to King. So when people in the rural Delta ask him if he's one of King's men, he says yes. He doesn't get into an explanation. He's very impressed by Dr. King's love of black people and their love of King. Mm -hmm. And I think some of that is because he aspires to the same thing. Because King, even though he's this man... Of, of, of letters, and he's born in the black middle class, in a way, King commits a kind of class suicide and class rejection by really identifying with the least of these. And Stokely does the same thing. So when we think about King and Stokely, they meet in 63. Stokely serves as his uh, uh, chauffeur, chauffeur yeah. in 1964 <laughs> in Greenwood. Um, they march together in Selma in 65, which is sort of a little-known fact. And, and Stokely moves into Lowndes County with SNCC, um, and don't go to the main Selma demonstration. They use that demonstration to burrow deep into Lowndes County to do their independent political organizing. Um, and they become really close along the Meredith March in 1966. They spent about three weeks together. Uh, in subsequent um, years, you know, King invites Stokely to his home in Atlanta for dinner. They speak on the phone together. Uh, they headline a major anti-war demonstration April 15, 1967, where there's 400,000 people there. So, so Stokely impacts King and King impacts Stokely. I think the, the, the thing that King does for Stokely is really uh, let him become more pragmatic and more patient uh, in a lot of ways. He, he sees that Dr. King really, really loves black people, and whatever King is trying to do is because of that love. And I think Stokely always credits Dr. King with teaching him and other black people how to face racial terror without fear. That's what he says, right? Um, Stokely impacts King just through his radicalism, um, his speaking truth to power, his vocal and robust anti-war activism. He teases King uh, the night of April 15, 1967, at Harry Belafonte's apartment. And Harry Belafonte is huge here, you know, civil rights activist, legendary uh, freedom fighter. And they're at his apartment in New York. And Stokely is teasing King, who had come out against Vietnam um, 11 days earlier at the Riverside Church, mm -hmm. and saying that, you know, you're coming out against the war because of, because of me. Yeah. And what's interesting is that two weeks later, a couple of weeks later, King calls up Stokely uh, and says that he wants him to come to Ebenezer Baptist last mm -hmm. Sunday in April, and he wants him to hear him speak, preach. And Stokely says, you know, I'm not coming because I'm going to be doing the Lord's. I'm not going to be doing the Lord's work. I'm doing the people's work like a good heathen. Yeah. And, and King implores him. Stokely says, um, why? King says he's going to be speaking out against Vietnam. And Stokely said he's going to be in the front row of that pew. And we've got great footage from Eyes on the Prize that shows Stokely mm -hmm. Carmichael alongside of Cleve Sellers, who's his, his best friend, yeah. SNCC activist too, leading the standing ovation after King really comes out against the war that last Sunday in April at Ebenezer. Right, and I, I want to dig in a, a little bit with this as well because uh, James Meredith, of course, a student uh, who was who was shot, had started a, a, a march on his own, and then it grew. Other people joined in, and and the Meredith March that you re referred to, letting our audience know what what that was, but also 
some of the tensions, you know, within the movement emerged somewhat within that march because some of the mainstream leaders didn't want to participate at first, but also that Stokely, who was an organizer, used the march for his own devices. I mean, other people might have had one idea of what they wanted to do with the march, but Stokely, the organizer, wanted to really use the occasion of the march and also his friendship with King, which gave him, you know, a certain amount of cred, right, in in the movement. So the march was kind of dual-purposed in a way. Yes, that becomes the last unified civil Mm -hmm. rights demonstration of the 60s, but SNCC and Stokely really utilized King... Um, um, and the King's presence, which attracts all that media, right. although King is not there that night of June 16th, um, to really unleash the black power phrase. So this is all strategic. This is definitely mm-hmm. strategic. For them, black power is going to be the radical, social, political, cultural self-determination that's required to initially uh, first get democracy and citizenship in the United States and eventually a, a, a political revolution once they figure that these democratic institutions will never work this, the way they're, they're, they're claiming they're going to work. Right. And also the organizing that happened during the march, I mean, along yes. the way and the various stops along Absolutely. the way of um, various confrontations, you know, with the police and, you know, just the organizing of, of local communities, which was really an important aspect of the movement at that time. Oh, and yeah. the march helped to achieve that. Yeah, they're going to register about 4,000 people. They're going to go into the Delta where people are um, picking cotton and, and take people with them. Small towns with names like Grenada, mm-hmm. uh, Belzoni, um, um, so many different little places in the Delta where they're, they're, they're organizing people. They're registering people to vote for the first time since Reconstruction. So genuine organizing is taking place there. Initially, Whitney Young and Roy Wilkins um, balk at this, and they balk at the fact that the Meredith March Manifesto— They were the Urban League. And, Urban um, League and, and NAACP. NAACP. Urban mm-hmm. League eventually is going to come back to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, they balk at this because the Meredith March Manifesto, one that King approves of, is um, very critical of Lyndon Johnson. And the Meredith March also wants very tangible— policy. Um, They want more protection for voters. They want more registrars there um, to register people to vote. And they want Justice Department protection for civil rights workers. Yeah. And and interestingly, also, it was black power in action because there were the confrontations that happened when the marchers were supposed to stay, let's say, in a black, you know, school grounds and and were stopped from doing it. And then local people who perhaps for the first time ever, you know, really had to stand up to to authorities and and to to the police. So the march also lent that kind of grassroots black power in a way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the McNeil Elementary School is where Stokely was supposed to put up the tent, and he gets arrested there yeah. because they had received permission from the black officials, but then um, they're overruled by white officials. And what's interesting is there's going to be huge violence in um, Canton, Mississippi, where uh, marchers are going to be routed by state troopers who were initially there to protect them. But once they start to set up a camp, there's going to be tear gas. Stokely's going to be hit in the chest with a canister. Uh, King is going to be there. There's going to be real disarray. King is going to call that violence worse than Selma. And I think a real denouement, two years after Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman are killed, King, along with Stokely Carmichael, returns to Philadelphia, Mississippi, which is the site of the assassination of Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman. The and three what, civil rights workers. Three yeah, civil rights killed. workers mm-hmm. killed during the Freedom Summer. And Stokely says that um, 
you know, there's all these racist mobs there. And Stokely says that this is the, the, the face of a sick and resisting society that pays lip service to democracy. That's what he tells them in Philadelphia, Mississippi. This is Sojourner Truth. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. You're listening to a one-hour special with historian Dr. Peniel Joseph, author of Stokely, A Life. We're going to take a station break. When we return, we continue our discussion of Stokely Carmichael, later known as Kwame Ture, the man who popularized the cry black power and changed the direction of the civil rights movement in the United States. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We now continue our discussion with Dr. Peniel Joseph. He has a book, Stokely, A Life. And, of course, uh, Stokely Carmichael, known by a generation for popularizing the cry of black power, but also developing um, the politics behind that cry. And our guest is Dr. Peniel Joseph. So you have the the um, Freedom Riders, Freedom Summer, of course, so many of the Northern, uh, especially, but not only white students going to the South. Um, Goodman, uh, Cheney, Schwerner killed. Uh, Cheney, of course, um, um, being tortured as well. Um, there's evidence of that that has, that has now emerged. So uh, Stokely is now in SNCC, part of SNCC, very well known in SNCC. He becomes, he gets elected uh, as the president. But that election was a bit controversial because he didn't get elected in the first round. He didn't get elected in the first round. They, mm-hmm. they, so, worth Long, a SNCC activist, is going to say that um, it needs to be re-voted on procedural grounds because not everybody right. uh, had a chance to vote. So John Lewis is replaced by Stokely um, Carmichael as chairman. And that's really going to end their friendship for, for, for a time. And really thrust SNCC into a different direction because Stokely is so charismatic and coupled with the black power speech. Uh, really a month and a half later, um, he's going to be this national iconic figure and also fill the vacuum that was left after Malcolm X's assassination February 21st, 1965. So in a way, when we think about Stokely's trajectory, by 66, 67, 68, he is a national and global icon um, in his own lifetime. Uh, receiving more attention um, than than Malcolm did while Malcolm was alive. 
So Stokely's international trips and Stokely's political activities are followed uh, by by the major government agencies and um, the media and different institutions and organizations in really a different way. So it's very interesting right. when we think about the way in which this time unfolds by 66, 67, 68, you know what a what a huge figure he becomes yeah and and that is still being debated among snickers as they call it today you know i know um my cousin martha prescott who uh, was in snick and, and definitely one of the stokely you know supporters in that but there there were some tensions um as a result of uh not only that that particular vote and uh john lewis and and the breaking with john lewis and and stokely but also Stokely then becoming a national figure and what that meant for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee as an as an organization, of course, in, in its its latter days. But uh, moving on, he clearly became of great interest to the media, of great interest to U.S. intelligence um, also, which which continued, I think, likely un, until the rest of his life, it seemed. But. I felt in, in reading the book and from my memories also of that time, there's a way in which what happened to Stokely and his evolution explained a lot of what was going on in the movement generally, because there were there really were those debates. I mean, there was the, the rise of Malcolm X. People in SNCC very much attracted to Malcolm X's more militant message as opposed to King's turn the other cheek you know, message, the rise of the, the Black Panther Party, the Nation of Islam, then the split that happened within the Nation of Islam and um, Malcolm X, you know, for example. And there were some of the decisions and some of the moment the decisions that Stokely made and some of the moments in his life, I guess, reflected his humanness in a way and and kind of which way am I really going? You know what I mean? Because the, the, there are a lot of people who were quite stuck and still remain stuck on, for example, um, Minister Farrakhan's role in criticizing Malcolm X after he left the nation, but yet Stokely developed quite a close relationship with with Minister Farrakhan. You yeah. know, So there were all those kinds of intricacies that have a lot to do with what happened with the civil rights movement, what happened with the black power movement. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's a lot of different debates and different mm-hmm. um, um, disputes that are going on. And certainly Stokely is a part of that. I think that the relationship with Farrakhan is because he believes in a black united front. But I think what's interesting about Stokely and his evolution in the late 60s is really the way in which really in a large way, we call him a revolutionary pan-Africanist, but when we think about black power and what he's doing, he's both that and he's this anti-imperialist. I mean, what what happens to him by, you think about the Berkeley speech, October of 1966, Mm -hmm. that's an anti-imperialist speech before he goes to Puerto Rico, before he goes to Cuba, Algiers. He's talking about white skin privilege, white supremacy. He says democracy is... um, um, not real in the United States, that the war in Vietnam is a va- racist war. He says that, you know, the United States doesn't have a conscience. King's message can only work with people who do have that. And he's mm-hmm. saying that's his difference with King. Not the message, just the fact that America is an empire and can't listen to this message. So what's interesting is his anti-Vietnam war protest and him going to Puerto Rico him going to London, the Dialectics of Liberation Conference, where Angela Davis sees him, um, him going to 
uh, Cuba, you know, a million people, Fidel Castro and Santiago saying this is the black revolutionary leader of, of the United States. Him going to Algiers where mm -hmm. he's with the FLN and the, the Algerian revolutionaries. Um, him going to, you know, Conakry, Guinea, where he meets up with Kwame Nkrumah, Sekou Toure, Miriam Makeba. He goes to Tanzania and meets up with Julius Nyeri, but representatives of the ANC and other different revolutionary organizations. He goes to um, uh, Copenhagen, meets up with Jean-Paul Sartre. He's in Stockholm. He's in Paris, right? All this is very, very um, transformative and heady. And by the time he comes back to the United States, he's prime minister of the Black Panther Party, popularizing that. Mm -hmm. So... He becomes really very, very broadly speaking, somebody whose politics and his intellectual ideas are very, very generative. He leaves the United States a radical political activist. I argue that he comes back really a revolutionary and ready to devote his life to what he sees as this global political revolution that's necessary to defeat uh, what he calls American empire, right? So there's this anti-capitalism anti-imperialism. For him, revolutionary pan-Africanism is the vehicle to get to that, right? right? And so many people are moving, moving, moving. He really anticipates the pan-African turn, but his pan-Africanism is very specific. Some are going to say sectarian, sectarian because it's incrumism, Toureism, where you think about somebody like Amiri Baraka, Congress of African People, it's, a, it's, a, it's sort of a larger, more expansive, we're going to let these people in. With Stokely, um, um, soon to be Kwame Touré, his vision, his re revolutionary vision is based on a, a specific political faith. He talks about scientific socialism, but it's a very specific vision and interpretation of Africa and African history, which he's getting from Nkrumah, he's getting from Touré. Right, and, and learning some tough lessons, because he, when he left the U.S., and I remember a lot of people at the time, I was like, what? Okay, he left the U.S. And, and made these international connections and built those connections, as you so rightly outlined. But then coming back to the U.S., clearly something had shifted. And the level of media interest, the level of um, power even within the black community that he was so connected to before leaving the U.S. had somewhat waned. I mean, it wasn't, it, he wasn't received in the, in the same way as he was Stokely, you know, raising the fist for black power and, and the Black Panther Party. I mean, even, even when he went south, um, returned to the south, except, of course, when he went to Washington, D.C. and Howard University, the red carpet was always rolled out uh, for him. So I imagine that was a, a tough political lesson on the one hand. And on the other hand, Nkrumah's vision of African unity and the unification of, of Africa and what happened in, in, in Guinea and increasing, creeping, what some would call sectarianism. Yes. Um, coming in. So he's really straddling a, a lot of worlds and, and seems to be doing it as well as he could, I imagine. But he really was in, in a quandary for a while there. Yeah, I mean, I think what's, what we see there is, is certainly there is sectarianism. By the time you're saying, you know, your specific ideology is the only way to unite Africa, that's sectarianism. Black power was more capacious and expansive. I think the difference when we think about Stokely Carmichael and the evolution to Kwame Ture, Stokely was asking all these questions, right? He was asking all these questions and admitted that he didn't have the answers. Um, you know, as Kwame Ture, he's saying he has the answers through, um, um, you know, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, the political thought of Nkrumah. Nkrumah dies in 1972, and then sort of the state leadership of, of, of uh, Sekou Ture, because he becomes connected 
to Sekutere, him and Miriam Makiba. So he's he's under sort of the protection of Sekutere. So there's not necessarily going to be a critique of the state of Guinea and really of, of, of different African autocrats, right? And, you know, for him, I think he's rationalizing that because there's this larger fight against imperialism that must take place, right? Yeah. For others, there's going to be a really criticism and say these are political blinders, Kwame Ture, that you have that you refuse to see. And certainly leaving the United States, I, don't, I think any political leader who leaves their, their, their adopted country, um, you're going to lose... Uh, a kind of power and prestige because you're no longer living there. And popular base. And popular base, you mm-hmm. know. And But I think one of the reasons he left, he didn't, I think he's very, very skeptical of what happened to people like Marion Barry, what happened to people like Jesse Jackson. He saw that not so much as a betrayal of the revolution, but just as not the right direction to take. Like well, he, it was the rise of the black political class. The rise of the black yeah. political class. So he could have, you know, become Stokely Carmichael mayor of some place, right? Yeah. But he, he didn't want that. He he believed in revolution, that capitalism and the contradictions of capitalism in terms of lack of access to health care, poverty, prisons, all of that needed to be eradicated. And you you know, I think he had tried in his own way to do it through local politics in Mississippi and Lowndes County, Alabama. And he said, look, that won't work. So what's interesting about him compared to other activists who might have a critique of electoral mm-hmm. politics. He had organized with people for electoral politics. He had organized for voting rights. He had lived and worked with some of the poorest people in America. And he said that didn't work in the way in which we had anticipated. So what he was doing, and I, sometimes you think of it as sort of politics on high, you know, you're with you know mm-hmm. Nkrumah and Toure um, and you're sort of jet setting, was a way his argument was Africa was our only natural land base. It was the only land base we could protect. So if you had a unified Africa, one nation, one army, one leader, that would provide leverage for black liberation in the United States, the Caribbean, and so on and so forth. Yeah, and um, I want to return to his his time in Africa, but really we have to set one story straight. So we have to go back a little bit within SNCC having to do with women. Because we all heard, the whole nation heard, Stokely said the role of women in the revolution is to be prone, right? So let's get that story straight of what really happened. Well, yeah, that goes back to November 1964 <laughs> in Waveland, yeah. Mississippi at a mm-hmm. SNCC conference where there, there's a then anonymous position paper on the role of women that has since been attributed to Casey Hayden, who was married to Tom Hayden At in the, the early time. 60s, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and Mary King, who right. in her memoir really recalls how um, after that meeting, um, they're on a pier in Waveland, Mississippi, and they're talking and laughing and people are joking. Because uh, you, you remember, these people are 21, 22 years old, yeah. 18, 19 years old. So they're kids. And somebody says, um, mentions something about the position of women in SNCC. And Stokely gets up and does a kind of little stand-up routine, which he often did. He imitated people like King. He would imi- imitate Kind Linda of a comedy Johnson. thing. Yeah. Comedy thing. And he says, the position of women in SNCC, and he pauses for effect, and he says, is prone. And everybody starts laughing. So it's a, it's a joke that, yes, it's a sexist joke um, among friends, among, mm-hmm. among um, people who might have been college uh, uh, classmates. Um, that has since um, been decontextualized and took on a life of its own. It sure but, did. But when you talk to mm-hmm. women in SNCC, they'll say that Stokely was among the most responsive men in SNCC. Mm-hmm. And it also makes it seem as if SNCC was this organization rife with sexism. doesn't mean there was no sexism in SNCC, but certainly um, one of the things that women, and there's a great uh, anthology by Judy Richardson et al., um, Hands on the Freedom Plow, about 
black and white women in SNCC is they talk about how transformative that experience was and how in terms of um, gender equity, uh, SNCC didn't mirror um, the, the huge, enormous patriarchy that was felt and misogyny on the outside, right? doesn't mean that there was none of that, but it just means that, you know, black women and white women in SNCC had um, enormous self-determination and, and, and exhibited enormous abilities and tenacity. So that wasn't the kind of things and treatment that was accepted within SNCC at all. Yeah, and Hands in the Freedom Plow put together by a number of, of SNCC women, yes. Judy being um, Judy being one of them. So I just w- had to get that out there. Yes. So then we move forward again to the, the complexities, really, of the time in, in Africa. Uh, because uh, Sekou Toure, starting out as a, a, a revolutionary, um, Guinea, the country becoming... Um, at least it's been reported to be becoming increasingly repressive against, you know, people who are opposition uh, to the government. And uh, Stokely always appeared with his button, you know, and and very loyal to that regime. They hosted him and his wife, uh, Miriam Makeba. Another controversial thing is his visit um, to Uganda, the invitation by Idi Amin. Mm -hmm. And and practically by then, the whole world knew about the controversies around uh, Idi, Idi Amin. So how did Stokely himself see what looked to other people as a contradiction. You you are revolutionary, but yet you're kind of consorting with people who perhaps have may have started out as in a revolutionary way, but have since betrayed the revolution. I mean, how did he? How do you see that he balanced that or justified it? Well, I think he looked at it as a couple of things. One, he believed in a very overarching vision of black solidarity about not publicly criticizing black people ever. You know. I think that that can constrain your politics and be a a major mistake. Two, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So the idea that Idi Amin and other African dictators who at least uh, both real and paid lip service to anti-imperialism, and for what Stokely was very important, anti-Zionism. Right, and support for the Palestinian people. Support for the Palestinian people. So what's interesting there is I think that these are um, errors. I think that these are mistakes. I mean, historical icons and leaders can make mistakes. They often do, right? But for him, he rationalized and justified that by saying that who is the United States to provide any kind of moral barometer for anyone? That was always his argument. His argument was that, you know, whether it was President Richard Nixon or others, hadn't they illegally surveilled people like him? Hadn't they um, um, been— Bombed and killed a whole set of folks. <laughs> in, in Vietnam and Cambodia, right? So who was the United States to tell anybody about morality, right? That's the argument. But, of course, I mean, by the time you're trying to play politics up on high, it gets very, very messy, um, Lowndes County and the Delta, it's it's a clearer, simpler political picture, right, that these are folks being oppressed and we need to stop this oppression. By the time you're saying you're aligning yourself with any state power, including the United States, right, I think, um, um, you know, whether you're president of the United States or you're uh, the head of, a, of, a, of another country, Africa or the third world, you're making all kinds of political calculations that are no longer as simple as, as black and white. And I think that's what he found himself in. But certainly I think he, as an older 
um, more mature activist, he, he found himself in positions that I think his younger self would have would have definitely questioned and criticized. Yeah. And by the time he, he fell ill and and dying at way too young an age, 57 in, in 1998, he seemed to have come full circle as people who uh, allegedly disagreed with him politically, who really gathered around him and, and supported him uh, during the time that, that he was ill. I can't believe how the how the clock is going because there's so much more we need to talk about. Um, <laughs> um, Dr. Binyel Joseph, the author of Stokely, A Life. So we're going to have to continue the, the conversation. But just finally, because I know you have to dash, um, I think it's great that you did this book and you, you did the research because it is true when we look back at, at the movement, and I think we, at, of that period, and we do have to do it, right? <laughs> so history doesn't repeat itself. There's a lot of talk about King. There's a lot of talk, of course, about increasingly about Malcolm X, because I don't think he has, he's been given his due yet as well, uh, Malcolm X. But Stokely did play an important role in, in all of that, and it, it really is important to see his evolution and all of the challenges that meet people who are trying to change the world. Yeah, absolutely. I think he's a great example of a well-lived life, especially mm -hmm. in the age of Obama, because we've turned this idea of success and money and wealth and fame at all costs into the only model of having a well-lived life, right? Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, it's a life of political struggle. And it's a life of victories, but also defeats as well and shortcomings, right? But he always believes in justice um, and revolution and the end of all forms of oppression uh, for everyone. Long past uh, the expiration date in the American imagination and even in the global imagination that things could get better and that, again, Goliaths could be defeated and that that you know racism economic injustice and inequality all those things could be ended in our lifetimes he continued to believe and that's why he answered the phone ready for revolution yeah and from a from a young man up until the time he died practically every day working for what he believed in that would change the world on that note i'm so sorry that we're going to have to leave it there Today's show was produced by Margaret Prescott. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret co-sponsor of the Fitzwah Show on Thursday, May 17th at 8 p.m. at Mississippi Pizza in Portland. Fitzwah plays R&B that mixes musical influences from Africa, Broadway, and traditional black music. Also playing the show is the band Thank You So Much. 
Again, that's Fritzwar on Thursday, May 17th at 8 p.m. at Mississippi Pizza, 3552 North Mississippi Avenue in Portland. This is a 21 and over show. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Good morning, you're listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM. Coming up next, it is Air Cascadia with Cassandra, and at 10.15, Flashpoints with Dennis Bernstein. And at 11, we have The Food Show with a focus on food culture and foodies. It is 9.59. Thank you, KBOO members, for your support. To stay informed and get involved, Go to kboo.fm and click on Donate to become a member. <laughs> 